Anyway, thanks. This was more fun than I thought it would be. <laughs> that's, that's all we're going to leave it in. Thank you so much for yes, humoring thank you. me. Yeah. <laughs> Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. All right, guys, welcome back to the Cribsiders. I am Dr. Justin Burke, and we are joined tonight by an outstanding guest, Dr. Lydia Petter, to discuss sickle cell disease transitions in pediatrics and adults. We also have the wonderful Dr. Martha Brucato, third-year MedPeds resident at Johns Hopkins. Martha, say hi. Hi, guys. Uh, we are very excited to have Martha. You might have remembered her as producing the sickle cell disease episode from the Curbsiders with Dr. Sophie Landstron. Go back and check it out if you haven't. But we're talking about the Curbsiders now. And Chris, who are the Curbsiders? We are the pediatric medicine podcast. We interview leading experts in the field of pediatrics to bring clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Lydia Pecker is a hematologist who transitioned from providing pediatric to adult sickle cell disease care in 2018 and directs the Center for Young Adults at the Johns Hopkins Sickle Cell Center. Her research focuses on reproductive health in women with sickle cell disease. We had a terrific conversation with Dr. Pepper reviewing pediatric complications of sickle cell disease, discussions of treatments, hydroxyurea, chronic blood transfusion therapy, and future treatments for sickle cell disease. So without further ado, let's get to it. Awesome. <laughs> Dr. Pecker, it's extremely exciting to have you. We are so grateful to have you. Because this is a little bit of an informal show, we often refer to our guests in the first name. Is it okay if we call you Lydia? Yep. Amazing. Thank you so much. So we usually try to start off with just some questions to get to know you. The audience wants to get to know you. And so we'd like to say, can you give us a one-liner to, to describe yourself and tell us who you are? Sure. I'm a native New Yorker. I love living in Baltimore. I'm a locavore and I'm here because I'm a sickle cellologist and I transitioned myself just over a year ago from providing pediatric sickle cell care in the pediatric context to providing young adult care in the adult context. You are the true crossover of MedPeds. Except I have no MedPeds training, only Peds. We have a lot of honorary MedPeds people on the we show. Do. So it's, we're, we're, real, it's real trial by fire. <laughs> <laughs> so my favorite question is, what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? There were so many to choose from, uh, but I, I thought about the time that I failed my friend Hillary, who I invited to a party uh, in my beginning of my second year of fellowship. And I then decided I wasn't going to the party. That was the part where I failed my friend. My friend called me and told me I was being a bad friend and that if she, I didn't show up at the party, she wasn't going to be my friend anymore. So I went to the party and I met my husband. So the moral of the story is do whatever Hillary tells you to. <laughs> yeah, I'm with her. <laughs> so how has the last six months in the pandemic changed your practice and what things are you going to be taking forward with you no matter what happens next? 
Sure. I have only seen patients by telemedicine since the end of March. So it's actually transformed our practice. I'm extremely fortunate because I work with a deep team um, of sickle cell experts, and in particular, my advanced practice providers are providing boots on the ground care at our infusion center. So I have the privilege of seeing all of my patients for telemedicine visits, but if they need to be evaluated in person and for all of their care needs that have to be delivered in person, we've been able to continue fully operational with that. So I've been lucky because I've been able to continue seeing patients and also um, be exceptionally safe myself and also because I have this amazing team that supports me. Love the teamwork messaging. Amazing. Great. So why don't we why don't we jump right into some content and wait, my friends um, from college will be very upset if I can't recommend a book that everyone should read. So let, a, book that, <laughs> a book that everyone should read, even if you're not a physician, is called Gods Go Begging by Alfredo Vea, who's a not well enough known American author who is also a public defender in um, the Bay Area. And he's an amazing writer who writes this incredible history, magical realism stuff. And you got to check it out. What's what the book about? The book is about two women who are friends in San Francisco and with different backgrounds, and their husbands died on opposite sides of the Vietnam War. And it goes back and forth between their lives and a a murder, their murders, and and their husbands' lives and deaths. Wow. wow. Deep. It's awesome. That's cool. We'll check it out and we'll put it in the show notes. Totally. Love a good public defender. And... He's pretty legit. Nice. Should we dive into it? Yeah, let's dive into it. Martha, <laughs> okay. you want to you start us off? Absolutely. So we're starting with a case from Cashlack Children's Hospital. Sarah is a 20-year-old patient with sickle cell disease who was new to your clinic to establish care. Prior to seeing you, she was following with her pediatric hematologist in another healthcare system uh, since she was initially diagnosed on newborn screening. She arrives in your clinic and is feeling well today, but is wondering how to get set up with her exchange transfusions. Her last transfusion was seven weeks ago, and she knows she's overdue. So for Sarah, kind of starting from basics, quickly, how and when is sickle cell diagnosed? So the answer to that question really depends on where you're born. If you're born in the United States, a newborn screening diagnoses all children with sickle cell disease in this country. It's actually incredibly rare to have a child slip through that system. And if you identify one, you should call the state that you that has missed the diagnosis because it's actually sort of a reportable issue in the system. So um, universal newborn screening in this country is nearly 20 years old. The New York State started doing it at um, almost 20 years ago, a little over. and But in other countries, newborn screening is not universal. And since we accept immigrants from all over the sickle cell world, if you meet people who were born in places where they didn't benefit from, from newborn screening, you may diagnose them based on a complication that you recognize as a complication of sickle cell disease. And sometimes you may recognize it based on just a CBC that you draw for another reason, even in an asymptomatic patient. So one question I have is, I, I, I often view, you know, especially within the U.S., those who are born with sickle cell tend to be African-American. Is it a different type of makeup for immigrants that we would expect to come in? So that's a great question. So in this country, most people with sickle cell disease are African-American. And remember, race is a pretty crummy proxy for genetics. So what it means to be African-American, what it means to be Black is is subjective and and, and not a, always a great proxy for what your genes are. And the, so to, you know, the way I think about sickle cell disease is that the 
the evolutionary pressures of malaria are what define who's at risk for having sickle cell disease. So if you have a genetic ancestry um, in a place where there was malaria, then you have a risk for at least having a beta globin gene mutation uh, or an alpha globin gene mutation and certainly a risk for sickle cell disease. So when I think about this question of who's at risk for sickle cell disease, I sort of think of it more in terms of where your people from than about what colors your skin, because skin isn't a great proxy for who's going to get sickle cell. And remember, there are, there are large populations of people with sickle cell disease in the Middle East and in India. Um, we just see fewer of them in this country. You mentioned the mutation in the, the beta globin and the alpha globin. Can you explain what sickle cell disease is and how there are different genotypes? Sure. So sickle cell disease is an umbrella term for actually a large number of different diagnoses that are all sort of anchored by the presence of at least one sickle gene mutation, which is a particular point mutation in the beta globin gene. But there are hundreds, if not thousands, of mutations in the beta globin gene. And so what it, it's really just a matter of how they are combined. You get one beta globin gene from your mom and one beta globin gene from your dad. And if you get two S's, we call that sickle cell anemia. So if you get the same mutation twice, which is a very common mutation, we, we call that SS disease or sickle cell anemia. If you get one S mutation and you get one beta thalassemia mutation, which comes sort of in two flavors, that's called sickle beta thalassemia. And if you get, for example, an S and a C, that's called SC disease. The mutations that have that don't lead to the exclusive production of hemoglobin S are usually called the compound heterozygous forms of sickle cell disease. And the two forms of sickle cell disease that lead basically to the exclusive production of hemoglobin S are called um, the sickle cell anemias, and that's hemoglobin SS and hemoglobin S beta zero thalassemia. When we have a new patient that comes into a primary care clinic or hematology clinic or, or any clinic to establish care, what are baseline workup that we should be performing, assuming we don't have records? If they just say they have sickle cell disease, should we be repeating the electrophoresis, baseline hemoglobin? What should I be thinking about when I meet a new patient with sickle cell disease for the first time who I don't know much about? Yeah, sure. So I think if you don't, if you can't confirm a diagnosis of sickle cell disease, sending a hemoglobin electrophoresis is your best first test. And I think it's very reasonable to do that. The information that you get from that test is really about about two things. One is what kind of hemoglobins the person makes endogenously inside their own body. And then if they've been transfused recently, you'll, you also may see that they have some hemoglobin A. And, and you know, some people like with hemoglobin S beta plus thalassemia make some A. But if you see a lot of A, that suggests that someone was transfused. So in, in any case, when someone comes into your office and they tell you they have sickle cell disease, I think starting with an electrophoresis is sensible. And hemoglobin A is the normal type of hemoglobin, kind of our baseline wild type. Yeah. So it's, it's with a capital A and it's two alpha globins and two beta globins make up the molecule. Right. Are there any other baseline labs that you need to get to establish care for this new patient? Yeah, so I think it's important. Um, we think about a lot of things at once when we meet a new patient with sickle cell disease. The labs that I get on everybody when I meet them are a complete blood count, a reticulocyte count, a comprehensive metabolic panel, a lactate dehydrogenase, and a ferritin. 
the, the information I get from those tests include what people's hemoglobin, platelet count, and white counts look like, all of which are affected by sickle cell disease. I get a picture of what their reticulocyte count is, so which is can help you think about their hemolytic rate. So do they hemolyze briskly or slowly? And, and in acutely ill patients, are they compensated or uncompensated for their anemia? In the comprehensive metabolic panel, I'm paying attention most closely to the creatinine, which remember, is usually low in people with sickle cell disease. Um, it's abnormally low. So I never let my residents say that creatinine was normal because it's almost never normal. It's almost always low. But if you don't sort of cross-check yourself when you look at that creatinine, you could dismiss it. And a normal creatinine in some of these patients is actually abnormal and indicates actually a rise from, from baseline. So you have to be a little bit awake when you look at the creatinine. And then the liver enzymes are, are good to see where they are, remembering that AST, right, is also a hemolytic marker. And so patients with sickle cell disease tend to have slightly elevated ASTs. But they shouldn't have abnormalities in their ALT if there's nothing nothing else going on. And then their bilirubin, um, usually we just start with a total bilirubin, is a reasonable place to start. And it just, again, is another marker of 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 red cell breakdown. I usually check ferritins because many patients have a history of transfusion. It sort of gives you a proxy marker for the iron burden in their body. And then with the, you know, the patient you talked about, Martha, who comes to you with a history of chronic transfusions, if, if you plan on continuing those transfusions, and really even if you don't, it's, it's very reasonable to test for the most common transfusion transmitted infections. So that's HIV, um, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C. And so at some point, you kind of want to, you may not be able to get all these labs all at once, but you want to do that. The, the other really key thing for a new patient with sickle cell disease, particularly those with a history of transfusion, is to get a type in screen and to let your blood bank know about the patient because um, the blood bank will, will do a lot of really important work to help you take the best care of your patient. And one of the things they'll do is contact other blood banks, and they'll do this for all over the country, to get records on what kind of blood the patient has received in the past so that they can provide safe blood going into the future. So both obtaining the type and screen, making it sure it goes to your blood, to your blood bank, not, not to LabCorp's blood bank and not to Quest's blood bank. And then also, if you can, having a direct interaction with your blood bank up front can, can really make a tremendous difference for these patients. Can I ask for a follow-up? When you had mentioned that sickle cell can change the white blood count, the platelets, the creatinine, and the LDH, can you talk about how it does that or why the creatinine is usually low and what we can gather from the level of the LDH? Sure. You know, I'm going to start with the LDH because it's the easiest one. LDH is another another hemolytic marker. It's, it's not a great marker. I don't get it a lot on patients, but usually I try to get it for them once when they're well, because sometimes when people come in and you're trying to figure out what's going on with their hemolysis, it's useful. It's been looked at and, and used for for attempts at creating prognostic scores. I, I'm not, I don't especially think that that works out. But, but I usually get it once. Do I hang my hat on it for anything in particular? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so. You know, if, if, you, if you needed to save three healthcare dollars, don't get the LDH. But, but I usually do it because I'm a subspecialist and that's my privilege. So, you know, creatinine is a really interesting question. The kidneys are one of the first organs that are injured in sickle cell disease. So remember that you don't start making adult hemoglobin and really adult beta globin until around six months of age. 
But what we know is that as soon as that that hemoglobin switching happens, that beta globin switch happens, and you start making the bad adult mutated sickle globin gene, and you start making sickle cells, the kidneys go down pretty much right away. And there is no intervention that was shown, has been shown to prevent that. So in the, the baby hug trial, which was the trial, the phase three trial of hydroxyurea in children with sickle cell disease, as starting at nine months of age, they were not able to prevent the early onset kidney disease, which was, which was one of their hopes in starting this drug so early in children. So in any case, hyperfiltration is a really early change in the kidneys. So remember, the kidneys are deoxygenated. They're acidic. Sickle cells hate being deoxygenated. They hate acidic environments. So, so you get sickling there pretty early on, and that causes early injury to the kidneys. And what that looks like is hyperfiltration. And what hyperfiltration looks like on a crude measure like a comprehensive metabolic panel is a low for age creatinine. That's helpful. I have sort of one follow-up question. So you're talking about you also get ferritin as sort of a proxy to see iron stores. You know, when I'm working up sort of iron deficiency anemia for my other patients, I get some of the other iron, TIBC, things like that. Would, would those be useful in this patient at all? Only if I was worried about iron deficiency. Okay. So, so usually the ferritin is sort of a best first test. Iron, iron deficiency definitely happens in patients. And um, anecdotally, I've heard a number of cases recently of very worrisome missed iron deficiency in in adults with sickle cell disease. But for for the purposes of sort of gauging iron overload, uh, a ferritin is a is a great place to start. So Justin also had asked me, what else do you get on a CBC? And I sort of shortchanged him with my answer by just talking about hemoglobin platelets and white count because you know I am a red cell doctor. What I was actually thinking of was the mean corpuscular volume, so the size of the red cells, right? And so there are a number of reasons that we are interested in the size of red cells, even in a a young um, patient with sickle cell disease. So the the first, right, is that if you're trying to distinguish between different forms of sickle cell disease, the thalassemias can make you microcytic. And so can iron deficiency anemia. So, so, you know, there's that. And then the presence of hemoglobin F, fetal hemoglobin, can make you macrocytic. So can the absence of B12 and folate, which can happen as well. So in any case, we use them, CV, as another marker. And, and so, Chris, to answer your question, if, if I got a CVC back that was microcytic and I couldn't explain it looking at the electrophoresis and the ferritin was low and, and I could also look at a blood smear, I probably would, would send the rest of the iron studies. Oh my gosh. Um, what a whirlwind already. I'm so know, excited. This is already great. Um, <laughs> this is great. I know we went to other stuff, but I, th- I think have, this is very helpful. Have, I, I don't want to slow us down, but I will say I'm, I, I keep getting more and more questions from us talking. Patients who are that I've seen on sickle cell disease are all on folic acid supplementation. Is that one, is that evidence based? I, this is something that I've always done or I've always seen done. And two, is that just because the idea is that the turnover of red blood cells is greater than the consumption of folate for creating red blood cells? So I love this question because it ties together like many of my favorite things about the world. Uh, so, so folic acid has historically been given to people with hemolytic anemias. And, and that's because the, the belief was that you could become folate deficient with, with these conditions. There's not strong data in contemporary context that that happens. And in the United States, the reason that that doesn't happen is that our whole food supply is supplemented with folate. Now, 
that didn't happen to protect children with sickle cell disease, right? It happened to protect the 50% of women in this country who have unplanned pregnancies and are, are therefore at risk for having neural tube defects. But the um, happy unintended consequences that most Americans live in a very folate rich environment. In many pediatric practices, they people continue to prescribe folic acid. I, I did not. The one significant difference between adult and pediatric care in this regard is that is that when we prescribe hydroxyurea to adults, we tend to write for folic acid with it. And that's because it turns out that folic acid deficiency in adults is a little more common than in children. And also the consequences are sort of the differential for macrocytosis in adults with sickle cell disease and actually just adults in general is usually more worrisome. So, so MDS and pre-leukemic states, which are extremely rare in children, period, happen sort of a dime a dozen in adult care. And so making sure your patients are fully replete when they're getting hydroxyurea, which also makes you macrocytic, right? It helps to sort of make sure you're not confounding a picture of hydroxyurea treatment versus folate deficiency. One interesting consequence of providing folic acid to children with sickle cell disease is that they like taking the medicine. So folic acid is sweet, it, it has a sort of Mary Poppins effect on children. And so often when you meet young adults with sickle cell disease, they like may not have very many happy childhood memories of their sickle cell disease. But when you ask them about folic acid, you may get a smile out of them because they'll say like, oh, yeah, I always loved taking that medicine because it, it was sweet. Right. So I've always wondered if we could compound hydroxyurea and make it like taste like folic acid. Could we improve adherence for that reason? Parents and um, young people associate folic acid with, with care, right? So they associate it with being cared for and they associate it with being taken care of. And so there are a subset of patients who come to adult care and they're like, no, no, I got to I got to take my folic acid. <laughs> so I, it, 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 I don't think I don't have any reason to think it's harmful. So but but I think, you know, it brings up all of these different kind of interesting issues. That's great. Cool. Wow. Martha, do you want to ask them any questions? Yeah. yeah, I think maybe we're in a good spot to talk about some of the other aspects of establishing care and specifically what components of her medical history are important to investigate. Thinking back to Sarah and her kind of blank slate presentation. Yeah, so I saw um, three new patients today, and I, I spend an hour with each new patient. So that's the first thing, which is a total luxury. I, I know that I'm extremely fortunate to be able to spend an hour getting to know my new patients. The, the reason I take a whole hour to get to know them is because my patients are medically complex. They, they've lived with this disease their whole life, and sickle cell disease touches everything. So, you know, this question was interesting to me because it's like, what components of the medical history are important? But actually, when I meet a new patient, I take a history that involves both medical history, social history, not usually political history. And, 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 and in doing that, I get a sense of not only how the patient has medically, you know, in terms of complications been um, affected by their disease, but also how it influences their life. And I also get a sense of what their life goals are, which can be really important for thinking through the best treatments for your patients. So, so that's the first part of the answer. The other part of the answer is that I have a very long review of systems and I go from head to toe, remember sickle cell touches everything. And so I, 
I thought I could rattle off a bit of that history for you, but it's 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 a bit extensive. And again, I have an hour to do it, so I have some luxury. I have some luxury built into my process. But I I start at the top, and the the first thing I talk about with the patients is where they received their pediatric care. So the first thing I want to know is a little bit about if how well they understand their disease. So I just ask them where did they get their pediatric care, and I ask them what kind of sickle cell they have if they know. And those are two really good baseline questions for how a person's cognitive function is. And and every once in a while, you learn an interesting thing about whether somebody did or did not receive pediatric care. I, I then talk about the CNS system, so histories of stroke, overt and silent, learning differences and educational attainment, history of seizures and brain aneurysms. I move from there to the eyes, where we talk about history of retinopathy and whether or not the patient is connected to an ophthalmologist. People with, dent- with poor dentition have increased inflammation. This is true for lots of diseases. It's true for sickle cell disease. So I actually incorporate a dental, just very basic. When was the last time you went to the dentist? Uh, do you need a dentist into, into our care? There are some open questions about whether patients with sickle cell disease have hearing loss at higher rates than the general population. And so I usually ask about balanced dizziness and hearing. As, as you may know, there are a plethora of pulmonary complications associated with sickle cell disease, and these include acute chest, obstructive sleep apnea, pulmonary emboli, and then many patients have concomitant asthma. And cardiac disease is a rare complication of sickle cell disease. There does seem to be an increased risk, particularly in adults, of sudden cardiac death, but that's not usually preceded by a significant history of cardiac disease. Pulmonary hypertension also goes in this list. Then I want to know about their organs in their abdomen. So there's the gallbladder, the spleen, and the liver, and those famous kidneys that we just talked about, Justin. Um, the, the musculoskeletal consequences of sickle cell disease are significant, and most people, by the time they reach young adulthood, are experiencing some of them. So um, thinking about both where patients have pain, what precipitates the pain, and how they treat it, and then also thinking about and asking about bony injury. So the joints, the large joints of the body are, are vulnerable. So the shoulders and the hips and, and the knees even may be affected. But another joint that I think we overlook often in our patients is the back. And it's extraordinarily common for our patients to start having low back pain in early adulthood if they haven't started it in their adolescence. And sometimes you can look at a chest x-ray just that was done for some other reason, and you can actually see the, the fish mouth deformity in the spine. It's, it's extremely common. We're not good at we don't really have a way to stop it from happening, and, and it's something that's picked up easily. And so that's some things to think about with musculoskeletal and pain. I, um, you know, I'm the sex, drugs, and rock and roll hematologist, so I spend a fair amount of time understanding people's sex histories in terms of their sexual activity, their reproductive life plan. So I ask them about when they want to be parents, if they're already parents, what their pregnancy history is. For young men, priapism is a, is a terrible and vexing problem. So right, priapism is a sustained and unwanted erection that if it lasts for more than four hours and recurs repeatedly is associated with erectile dysfunction. Young women have dysmenorrhea. Sometimes that's associated with sickle pain and sometimes it isn't. Many patients have unique risks for thrombosis associated with contraceptive use. So I, I spend some time thinking about that. There's blood clot history to get through, leg ulcer history, treatment history. I screen everyone to find out if they have a potential matched sibling donor for, for bone marrow transplant. And I screen everyone to find out if they have a primary care doctor. It usually takes 30 minutes. <laughs> wow. Wow. 
So one one follow up question I have is you you say you also spend a lot of time in uh, the social history as well. Are there specific things in the social history you're looking for, especially when we're looking at social determinants of health or even other racial biases that we might be running into as we're taking care of these patients? Yeah, so so one thing I've found by taking that review of systems is I get a lot of sneak peeks. So by the end of that list, I often have a lot of the answers to these questions. For, for example, I know whether patients know whether they have dental insurance. That's one of my questions. I know whether they have a partner that they live with. I know a little bit about their family because I know if they have a matched sibling donor. And so that's like the first sort of layer of this. I also, when I ask about pain treatments, you know, I, I'm not convinced that marijuana is an especially effective treatment for sickle cell pain, but its use is exceptionally common in my patients. And so when I ask about pain medicines, right, I'm asking about Tylenol, ibuprofen, opioid medications, and marijuana. So I get a window into their marijuana use. When I start thinking about material hardship, and I, I, I think in the context of COVID, this has the need for this screening has only become amplified. But I, I have in the context of, of COVID have actually even increased my household material hardship screening to include, right, do you or the people who support you have stable employment? Do you have enough food? Do you have enough electricity? And do you have adequate housing? And, you know, for, for young adults who neither appear to have an educational goal nor confess to me that they have a job, I usually am nosy about how they pay bills, who supports them, because it's really important for young people to understand sort of what they're imagining for the trajectory of their lives. I hope that helps. With educational attainment, can you talk about transcranial Dopplers and uh, uh, possible? <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to word this question without just being, but my, my understanding, which may or may not be correct, is that there's also kind of these silent educational disparities from patients um, with sickle cell disease because of vascular disease in the brain. And one of the reasons we check transcranial Dopplers in the pediatric population is to pursue this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is that correct? Am I close? Yeah. So I think there's there's two kinds of injury to the brain in sickle cell disease. And I'm sure the brain doctors are offended by what I just said, because you know there we know there's like a dozen kinds of kidney injury, and I'm reducing the brain injury to two. I think there's overt brain injury in sickle cell disease, and there's insidious brain injury in sickle cell disease. And in this country, with the advent of transcranial Dopplers and the reduction in the overt stroke incidence from about 11% of children with sickle cell disease to about 1% of children with sickle cell disease, the overt stroke rate has fallen dramatically. However, there's lots of insidious injury that is caused by sickle cell disease. And so, so one of those kinds of injuries is called silent cerebral infarct, which we know isn't that silent because as you've alluded to, Justin, it causes learning differences. And then, the, you know, there's also just vascular malformation or, or maldevelopment, right? Cerebrovascular disease that can, that can occur. That's not a stroke, but it certainly is significant changes in the blood vessels of the brain. So, you know, I'm hopeful that, that in the next round of how we treat and understand this disease, that we can further level the playing field, not just from eliminating overt stroke, but also thinking about and improving how we, how we improve some of these other things. Now, the, the kind of fascinating thing about this um, is that Alison King and her colleagues, and, and actually a multi-center group from the SIT trial, which looked at transfusions to reduce silent cerebral infarcts, they actually looked at at cognitive and outcomes in within that transfused population. And, and one of the most devastating consequences of silent cerebral infarcts was the, the lower 
school performance in children who had them compared to children who did not have silent cerebral infarcts and also compared to their unaffected siblings. Um, but that was still not as damaging as being raised by a mother who didn't have some degree of, of educational attainment. But in any case, you know, there are there are sort of mountains beyond mountains with this. And in the, the subgroup of patients that we care for who, who are also affected by poverty, there are other neurocognitively damaging events that are probably less easy to modify than sickle cell disease. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. no, that's, that's helpful. I have one more, I think, related question to these, and then I want us to, to dive into the transition and, and I'll let Martha steal the show. But one other thing for the, the pediatric audience and something that I always think about and want to make sure I have clear as far as the risk of infections in the pediatric populations, maybe a little bit before they are transitioning, but we have them on penicillin. They have a different vaccination uh, schedule. What's the deal with sickle cell disease and risk for infections? So, so, you know, there's some things we do know, and then there's the fact that, that history moves. So the Dallas newborn cohort was the cohort of children who were born actually at about the same time I was in, in Dallas, and they were followed for their whole lives. And about 10 years ago, the paper came out that said, guess what? The Dallas newborn cohort grew up. Uh, the Dallas newborn cohort survived. And a few years after the Dallas newborn cohort was born, the PROPS-1 study came out. PROPS-1 looked at penicillin prophylaxis in children under five years old with sickle cell disease. It turns out the, the Dallas cohort benefited from penicillin and, and the Dallas group didn't participate in PROPS-1 because they were already giving penicillin to their patients, or so I'm told. But, but PROPS-1 really showed, and this again was in 1986, the year the Mets last won the World Series. So in 1986, the PROPS-1 study showed that if you gave children with sickle cell disease who were less than five years old penicillin, you presented deaths from sepsis um, and just pre prevented sepsis in general. And since then, two things happened. One was PROPS-2 was studied. PROPS-2 was a follow-up study that looked at older children with sickle cell disease. It didn't show any benefit from penicillin treatment. Some people don't interpret the study that way. Some people interpret it as that it showed possible benefit, but the results were much less clear than in the under five population. So those two studies inform our practice of penicillin prophylaxis. Many centers don't continue children older than age five on penicillin. Um, they stop the drug or defer to the parents' wish about whether they continue penicillin. But that's the, that's the research that's the basis for initiating penicillin prophylaxis. It's also really the research that provides the justification for newborn screening. Because if you intervene early with penicillin, you can prevent these deaths. Now, the piece of this that's a moving target, right, is that our vaccination schedules since 1986 have been transformed. We have a PCV 23 or PPSV 23, and we have a PCV 13 that we give these guys. We have flu shots for them. We have H influenza, right? All we have vaccines against the encapsulated organisms. And so nobody will ever do this study again. We are never going to see randomized children with sickle cell disease to no penicillin. In the U.S. context, I don't think that study could ever be ethically performed. But in the context of a sort of totally transformed vaccine environment, it is interesting to wonder about the importance of penicillin. The other thing that's sort of interesting about penicillin is, and there's a pretty recent study about this based on refill data that was published in pediatrics, is that people don't take it very much. Huh. But but even with low adherence, it seems to change infection rates, right? So there's something about getting penicillin into patients' homes 
that seems important, right? And so we don't know. Nobody's ever said like, do you only give your kid their penicillin when you think you, they, you touch their head and they feel warm or like when they go to the birthday party and they run into another kid who's diagnosed with strep throat, right? Like we don't, we don't have great like anthropological data of how parents give their kids penicillin. But however they're doing it, it seems like it works, or maybe it's the improved vaccine schedule. I don't, I don't want to trivialize the importance of penicillin here. I think for children under five, this is a life-saving intervention and extremely important. I just think it's become more complicated um, in the U.S. context. Is there a proposed mechanism why after the age of five, the penicillin seems to have, be less obvious of effect? Or why it does work before five? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, why it does work before five. So I think, you know, most of this is about pneumococcus, first of all, but, but young children just have right more vulnerable immune systems. I know that's a little bit of a hand wavy thing to say, but it's um, about as good an answer as I can give you. The little ones are more vulnerable to this kind of death. And as you get older, you just don't have quite the same risk. Even, even though you become functionally asplenic, right? We say you become functionally asplenic around age five. So with the functional asplenia and, and the pneumococcus you're talking about, so in terms of vaccines, what are the vaccines we're specifically looking for um, when we're intaking these patients? There is one reason that I send my patients to their primary care doctors, as Dr. Ricardo knows. But, you know, so, so one thing, right, is that most sickle cell patients do get their vaccines with their primary care doctors, but, which is great. But the vaccine schedule is mostly not terribly different from non-immune compromised children, right? But we are, we do give the the 23-valent pneumococcal vaccination and the meningococcal vaccines. And, and after that, most of the vaccine schedule looks an awful lot like a pediatric vaccination schedule. Did I get anything wrong, Dr. Brucato? <laughs> I'm Dave Stukas. Do you want to learn more about pediatric asthma? Do you want to learn how you can use simple tools such as the Asthma Predictive Index to try to figure out which children will or will not have persistent asthma throughout their childhood? Do you want to learn how to take a comprehensive environmental assessment and discuss factors that can impact asthma management with families? Have you ever wondered what the difference is between asthma severity or asthma control? Do you want to learn how the new genus strategies have turned the asthma world upside down? To learn more, join me for the Cribsiders episode on pediatric asthma. I think the the piece that I'm always looking and checking to clean up, did they get at least one Hib? Some patients actually do come without having gotten a Hib vaccine. Do they have all of the MCB4 vaccines that they need? Did they complete the series? Did they get their five-year booster? Bexero or a meningococcus B vaccine, frequently patients have not gotten because it's not part of our routine vaccinations. And then sometimes they do need the catch-up PPSV23. So those are the ones that I usually need to think about when patients are coming to establish primary care. And, you know, Martha, we say, right, that the patients should get the PPSV23 every five years, which is just based on our expert opinion. I was thinking maybe we could talk about the mortality increase around the time of transition and, and why this is a vulnerable time period. And then this question of what is happening in the world of hematology to improve transitions from pediatric to adult care. So, you know, Martha, I think why does mortality increase around the time of transition from pediatric to adult care is one question. But in, in some places, 
so it's usually Americans who ask this question, and and it is usually people from not the United States who say, does mortality increase between the transition between pediatric to adult care? So, you know, we see a spike in this country in young adults with sickle cell disease, and they, they appear to be at increased risk for death. Whether or not this is a universal phenomenon is not clear. It's, it's, it's debated. And I, and, so, and I think both pieces of the debate are worth considering, right? So, so one thing is that we work in a fractured healthcare system. And, and I think, you know, there's, I, th- I have a lot of hope that we are going to continue to improve how we provide lifespan care for people with a disease that spans their whole life. Um, and certainly MedPeds providers are going to help light the way for that kind of perspective and that kind of work. But, but we have a fragmented care system in this country. It coincides with when you go to college. It, trans, it coincides with when you start work, living more independently from your parents. Before Obamacare, it coincided with a, with a significant loss in, of insurance coverage for young people. And, and so in this country, there's a lot of, of ways in which you could, you could be missed. You could fall out of care sometime between your late adolescence and the beginning of your early adulthood when you're supposed to be in the adult care setting. And so I think those are some of the structural pieces that in this country inform disease risk and disease treatment. The other question, which is the does mortality increase question is, does the disease get worse when you turn 18, 19, 20, 21? I think the disease catches up with you. So it's really important to remember. And I think this may be, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable to remember this because it's not a nice thing to think about. But young people who are 22, 23, 24 with sickle cell disease, if they have the sickle cell anemia kinds of sickle cell disease, they're middle-aged right? Their life expectancy is late 40s, early 50s, and, and get, their bodies sort of start to act like middle-aged bodies. So for those of you who trained in internal medicine, you, that has some meaning to you. And for those of us who are entering middle age, it also has some meaning. So, so, so your body just doesn't, do, doesn't bounce back the way it used to. You know, th- this disease really starts catching up with people in this age group, 18 to 25. Acute pain episodes that used to resolve after a few days become chronic pain episodes that never fully resolve. You know, kidney, insidious kidney disease that, you know, as we've talked about, Justin looks like low creatinine becomes something that looks more like microalbuminuria. You know, and so there's a lot of examples of this. A lot of it is, I think, in the damage to the bony structures of the body. I'm not sure the damage to the bony structures of the body causes the increased risk of death, but but certainly at this age, this disease is catching up with people in a way that it just didn't when they were 10 years old. I think I think the third risk that's not quite captured by either of these categories is that unfortunately we have an inadequate care system for adults with sickle cell disease in this country, and so there are really not enough specialists to care for this population. And in fact, right, my dad has been doing this my whole life, over 40 years. And, and when he was training, children with sickle cell disease did not universally grow up, right? So he certainly met patients with sickle cell disease, but they weren't nearly as common as they are now, right? Now we have a universally grow in this country, a universally growing up population of children with sickle cell disease. About 98% of children make it to adulthood. And so what this means, if you're frequently hospitalized, is you end up being hospitalized in a place where people don't have expertise in sickle cell disease. So maybe they give you the wrong opioid dose, or maybe they don't recognize an acute chest, or maybe their blood bank doesn't talk to the other blood bank and you get the wrong kind of blood. You know, there's a lot of possibilities, right? We do a lot of things to these patients. They have a lot of medical problems, and we often 
they often have experiences where they are diagnosed with just pain when a deeper look at what's going on inside their body is required. If I'm admitting a patient in the hospital or seeing a patient in clinic, whether they're a young adult or um, adult, a lot of times I'll find out that they are on hydroxyurea or they're getting chronic red blood cell transfusions. Can you talk a little bit about what the decision process is between why some people are on hydroxyurea, why some people are on chronic uh, red cell transfusions? Sure. So it's a good question. There are a number of older doctors in the field who have who have always said, if chronic transfusion makes this disease better, why don't we just put everyone on chronic transfusions, right? And, and the reason for that is that there are some side effects of chronic transfusions, and also there may not be enough blood to do that. And right, it's a resource intensive way to do this. And there are probably some other reasons too. But the absolute indication for transfusions in people with sickle cell disease is related to cerebrovascular events. So there are two groups of children who are, who are absolutely, at this moment in time, transfused. The, the first group is children who have abnormal transcranial Dopplers. And, right, so, so transcranial Doppler screening is performed annually in children with the severe forms of sickle cell disease. I, I actually hate that term. But, but with, with the sickle cell anemias, so people who exclusively make hemoglobin S. And, and that's because, because transcranial Dopplers predict stroke risk. And so if you have elevated TCD velocities as a child, um, you're considered at increased risk of stroke and you're started on a chronic transfusion program. The other absolute reason to go on transfusions is if you have an overt stroke. And people with overt strokes in childhood are started on chronic transfusions and they're never stopped. The third group is this group with cerebrovascular disease, moya moya, other kinds of sort of anomalous cardio cerebrovasculature, and they're also often continued indefinitely on chronic transfusion therapy. You know, one complicating factor of this is the is the Twitch study. So the Twitch study was the study that looked at whether you could take children who were treated with chronic transfusions because they had abnormal TCDs um, and put them on hydroxyurea, and that it was a non-inferiority study design. And it, they basically, the conclusion of the study was that hydroxyurea was non-inferior to chronic transfusions in a population of children with a history of abnormal transcranial Doppler who had already been transfused for a period of time and had, had reverted to normal TCDs, right? So you really have to think about when you interpret this, the twitch data about the patient population that was sort of included in this study. It's not evidence that suggests, and in fact, there was a negative study in this regard called SWITCH. It's not data that suggests that if you've had a stroke that you can be safely switched to hydroxyurea. You cannot be safely switched to hydroxyurea. So the two groups of patients that we don't think of as being safe switches to hydroxyurea are children who've had overt strokes and, and children with really overt cerebrovascular disease. So that's a, a kind of long way of saying that the first population of, of children or adults on chronic transfusions usually have something with their brain. Another group of, of chronically transfused patients have had a severe complication of, of sickle cell disease, either while they were on hydroxyurea or while they were non-adherent to hydroxyurea, or it was just bad enough that everybody thinks they need a little time to recover. So examples of that are people who spend some time in the ICU because they have an acute chest syndrome, or you know, every once in a while you have someone who has a has a a little brain aneurysm that ruptures and they manage to survive that and they're lucky. And whether that patient should stay indefinitely on transfusions or not is not really known. 
Transfusions are also used in pregnancy. There's not definitive data about that, but, but we tend to transfuse patients if it can be safely done if they have sickle cell anemia at our center with, with attention to the risks and benefits of that approach. And a subset of patients with um, chronic complex pain are treated with chronic transfusions. Dr. Lanscron likes to say that it takes sickle out of the picture while you're evaluating a complex chronic pain scenario, and I think that's a reasonable way to think about it. So, so that's chronic transfusions and, and some of the, the scenarios in which you might meet someone on chronic transfusions in both the adult and pediatric setting. Hydroxyurea is, is now approved in children with sickle cell disease, so that's actually a new thing. It happened just recently. The FDA approved hydroxyurea for children with sickle cell disease. The 2014 consensus guidelines from the NHLBI say to offer hydroxyurea to children starting at nine months of age with sickle cell anemia, so SS or S-beta-0 thalassemia. The the committee decided they didn't have strong enough evidence to say there's an absolute indication, so it's not quite like insulin for diabetes. But there's been a real practice shift over the past five to 10 years in terms of, of paradigms for pediatric sickle cell anemia treatment, which is, again, sort of similar to what you heard echoed when we talked about transplant. You don't, you don't have to wait for symptoms to know that sickle cell anemia is a bad disease and that hydroxyurea prevents important complications of the disease. So we, we have, I call them the baby hug generation. So that was the, the trial that looked at, that looked at hydroxyurea in young children. And, and the baby hug generation is coming for adult medicine. So these are the children who may have benefited from starting hydroxyurea early in childhood. Certainly they're not universally arriving in adult care. I imagine some people listening to this are thinking of all the patients they've met who've never been written for hydroxyurea. But, but I think, you know, that, that paradigm has really only shifted in the past, over the past decade of treatment of pediatric care for sickle cell disease. In, in adults, the indications for hydroxyurea are a little different. And again, the NHLBI guidelines are a great resource for this. Um, the American Society of Hematology is also issuing a series of guidelines for the care of, of, of adults and children with sickle cell disease. But hydroxyurea in adults is really more based on whether you're having events from your disease. So pain events and acute chest events in particular are indicated to start hydroxyurea in this population. But I think in general, what we're seeing is a, is a lowering of the threshold for starting hydroxyurea because it's a, it's a good drug for a bad disease. And one of the questions, whenever I take care of a patient on the inpatient that has sickle cell disease, I feel like the hematologists love seeing the residents and interns' eyes when they have a hemoglobin of 4.8. <laughs> and they're like, no, we don't need to transfuse. They're fine. <laughs> Welcome to my world. And it's, it is super interesting. And my understanding is that we don't do that because they need to preserve the blood so they're not developing these antibodies to blood types. It seems counterintuitive then to have someone chronically getting red blood cell transfusions when the specialist told me I couldn't transfuse someone with a hemoglobin of 4.8. I don't know if I've ever been able to reconcile this. I think maybe after Dr. I think Dan, Dr. Landstron maybe convinced me at one point and that, since that neuron has flown the coop but so listen an episode of severe anemia is the diff is different from walking around after you've had a stroke with a hemoglobin of six and a half okay they're not they're not the same thing so and i would encourage you not to think about them in the same way so acute encounters for sickle cell disease are not par not parallel in many ways to what you see when you see patients who are well on the outpatient side the question about whether to transfuse a patient with a hemoglobin of 4.6 doesn't really depend on the bravado of the hematologist who is consulting on the patient. It depends on the patient. 
So symptomatic anemia, right? If you have a headache, if you have dizziness, if you have orthostatics from, from your anemia, those are probably reasonable reasons to give someone blood. And, and you know, using 4.6 as an example is a good pediatric example because m- most children tolerate degrees of anemia that adults don't. I would say 4.6 for adults, we often get into symptomatic range anemia. So, but, but on the other hand, I think it's probably quite reasonable that you've seen patients with low fives on the adult side and we've said, don't give blood. So, so, you know, one question about that I would ask you about that patient, which you already know what I'm going to ask you is what's the retic, right? And so the reticulocyte count is the first question. If this is a patient who's reticking, who's making, who's replacing those blood cells, then I know that the, the compensatory response in the patient is intact. If they're not reticking, then we know that giving blood is inevitable because our patients with sickle cell are reticulocyte dependent to maintain their hemoglobin, right? So, so we, it's important to play a thinking person's sickle cell disease game when you admit a patient with a hemoglobin of 4.6 or 5.5. The second thing is, what's their baseline hemoglobin? So if you, if you um, admit, a, for example, a chronically transfused patient who's dropped their hemoglobin to 4.5, four they're going to feel terrible because they don't live at a hemoglobin of four and a half. Maybe they live at a hemoglobin of eight or 10. And, or maybe they have SC disease and they live at a hemoglobin of 10 their whole life. Dropping your hemoglobin to four is a very uncomfortable event for those people. The next thing is, what are the symptoms? Why is the patient in the hospital, right? So are they there with pain? If they're there with pain and they have an adequate reticulocyte count and you've ruled out other issues that could have brought them into the hospital, then the evidence for transfusion in that context is not good. And so that we don't usually think that the risks of transfusion outweigh the benefits. Again, if they are only having pain, and I put that in quotation marks in case you couldn't see that at home. So that's sort of how to think about when you're transfusing or not transfusing a patient with sickle cell disease in the hospital. Some reasons you might change your mind about whether to transfuse that patient is if they start to have some kind of end organ um, injury announce itself. So you might change your mind if that patient progresses, right, from a pain event to an acute chest, right? We know being hospitalized for a vasoclusive crisis is a risk factor for developing acute chest syndrome, right? That's why you give everybody an incentive spirometer when they're admitted to the hospital to try to prevent that. But but if you develop acute chest and your hemoglobin is four and a half and now you have a new oxygen requirement, well, now we have a reason to give you blood, right? So there are other, there are other parts of your body that could start to have problems, which might also convince you to give blood. Now, compare that to a chronically transfused patient. In a chronically transfused patient, you're playing defense against either a set of things that have occurred once that you need to try to make never happen again, like a stroke, or you're playing defense against things like recurrent acute chest or or severe pain events. And, And that's a different kind of sort of symptomatic treatment approach, I would suggest to you, than, than an approach to an acutely ill patient with sickle cell disease. Have I convinced you, Dr. Burke? So- this was all just a hypothetical for Chris. This is really <laughs> <laughs> I think something that would be really great to talk about is BMTs. And especially I've seen that we're doing them more often, or at least referring for them more often. And talking about BMTs and other new treatments for sickle cell that have come out in the past three years, I think would be really helpful. Dr. Brucato, when you say BMT, you mean bone marrow transplant. Is that right? Yes. 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 Just wanted to clarify for the studio audience. Um, So, so, you know, 
there are two cures for sickle cell disease now. One is bone marrow transplant and the other is experimental gene therapy. And certainly experimental gene therapy has been um, made more famous in the last couple of years with coverage on a number of prominent news stations, including NPR and other places that don't pay me to promote them. And so there's been a real shift in, in how we think about transplants. So we're always balancing the patient in front of you with the risks of the procedure. So the risk of the disease versus the risk of the procedure. And we, we don't have a lot of super clear answers about a lot of things related to transplant. So bone marrow transplant, what is a bone marrow transplant? So what does it require, right? Bone marrow transplant most crudely is we destroy your bone marrow and we replace it with somebody else's stem cells and those stem cells repopulate your bone marrow with healthy bone marrow and you don't make sickle cells anymore, right? And, and it turns out your white cells are okay and your platelets are okay, but we just need you to not make your red cells anymore. And transplant is still experimental for most adults with the disease. So there was recently a really important paper that came out looking at outcomes of almost a thousand patients who've been transplanted with sickle cell disease. And one of the important things they identified was that people over the age of 13 were at higher risk for a number of bad outcomes related to transplant. So any adult you're sending to transplant is at a higher risk of having some problem associated with that. Because outcomes for young children have really been transformed, particularly with the use of matched sibling donors, many people consider a matched sibling donor transplant to be a standard of care for children with sickle cell disease. And in fact, people are no longer waiting for people to become children to become symptomatic with their disease. So, so right, one of the questions that's always vexed us in sickle cell disease is how do we define disease severity? And in children, how do we predict what you're going to look like in 30 years? We can't do it. So, so there's always been this controversy, right, about how, who should you give this very toxic treatment to with the potential for cure, which is not to be underestimated, and when should you give it to them, and who should you give it to? Right. So, so anyway, in the pediatric population, there's been a move towards matched sibling donor as a, as a standard of care um, because of the risk benefit profile favoring pretty good outcomes, good chances of cure. And we know this is a really crummy disease. What we don't know is whether if you get transplanted when you're a kid, if you outlive your prognosis for how long you would live with sickle cell disease. And, and the other thing we don't know is what is how quality of life over time compares between these two treatment groups. So I, I think that's sort of the landscape of, of transplant. I mean, from a non-transplanter perspective, I, you know, the, the open questions are like, what, what are the best donor sources? So, so one extraordinary limitation to a bone marrow transplant in this population is that most people don't have a matched sibling donor. And so expanding access to transplant using alternative donor sources, especially haploidentical transplants, has become um, an area of, of intense interest both at our center and at many, many other centers. And, and so that's sort of a creative and hopeful way to expand the, the population of patients who could be reached with this curative approach. Maybe two sentences on things like L-glutamine and Veloxator. Did I say that right? No, but that's okay. No. Who says okay. it right? So there are three new drugs for sickle cell disease. One is in the order of appearance, how about that chronologically, is L-glutamine, Voxelator, and Crizemlizumab. And L-glutamine was FDA approved on the basis of some data that, set, that showed that it decreased pain frequency in patients with sickle cell disease. It's a, um, the effect of that drug is 
to me, the benefit of the drug is weighed against the way you have to take the drug. So it's a powder medication that you take twice a day. And that's a pretty cumbersome way to take a medication. Some, some places that, um, that some places are prescribing it more, but, but in any case, the, the main, it's supposed to be a nitric oxide donor. I should really start again on this one. L-glutamine is supposed to be a nitric oxide donor. And it was shown in the phase three study to reduce pain modestly in people with sickle cell disease. And that was sort of the basis for FDA approval. Subsequently, these two new drugs came out and the two additional drugs have sort of in my book, at least, knocked L-glutamine down to third-line treatment. The first of those drugs is Voxelator. And again, each of these is first in class. There is an anti-sickling agent, so it actually gets into red blood cells and inhibits sickling. It decreases hemolysis. The main endpoint and the basis for FDA approval of that drug was that it increased the hemoglobin by one gram per deciliter. So there was no patient-reported outcome that was associated with the basis for FDA approval. Remember, hydroxyurea decreased pain um, and decreased acute chest syndrome, hospitalizations, and transfusions in people treated with it. L-glutamine decreased pain. Voxelator increases the hemoglobin by a gram in people for whom it works. And, and for a subset of patients, it increases the hemoglobin more. And for a subset of patients, it doesn't increase the hemoglobin. So that's Voxelator. And a, a nice thing about Voxelator is that it's a, an oral medication and, and only needs to be taken once a day. Another nice thing about Voxelator, you know, hydroxyurea has a very complicated side effect profile, although it has a very robust data set to support its use, the side effects of Voxelator seem blander, but I think we also don't have as much robust data about the benefits of Voxelator. So that's sort of to, to be determined. The final drug is crizanlizumab, which is a monoclonal P-selectin antibody that's given by IV. So, and, and the outcome and the basis for FDA approval of that drug was that it decreased pain by about 50% in people who used it. It was it studied in both patients with sickle cell anemia and compound heterozygous sickle cell disease. It, you know, sort of connecting into these themes of what we do and do not know about these drugs, we are still waiting for evidence that this drug affects any end organ function um, meaningfully. But it seems to be reducing pain in a, in a number of patients. The fact that both Voxelator, L-glutamine, and crizanlizumab are all patented medications has led to varying degrees of barriers to get them insurance approved and, and varying degrees of debate about whether they should be paid for on the basis of the evidence that we have available for their use. I think uh, Voxelator was also the bad guy in He-Man. <laughs> Isn't that Veloxator? Skeletor, Skeletor. That was Skeletor was oh man, don't t- um, do well, not well, tell my husband how to listen yeah. to this podcast. He will be so embarrassed. <laughs> and maybe this is a good time for us to talk about reproduction and fertility um, in patients with sickle cell disease, which I know is a particular interest of yours. So some people that I am on a conference call with once a week would tell you that I always think it's a good time to talk about (laughs) Martha. But uh, so there are many reproductive consequences of sickle cell disease. And the advent of bone marrow transplant really has highlighted some of them because some patients are concerned about fertility before they're exposed to potentially gonadotoxic chemotherapy and and radiation. Again, much of it, I say potentially because the the degree of the gonadotoxicity over time is not always well-defined. With some preparative regimens, it is, but with others, it isn't. In any case, I, I sort of think about the reproductive consequences something like this. For men with sickle cell disease, 
we talked about priapism and erectile dysfunction being being a real thing. The other thing is that men with sickle cell disease, or at least some fraction of them, don't have normal sperm counts. And that seems to be a function of the disease. And there's an open question about whether it's a function of hydroxyurea treatment. So there's some data actually that points in either direction. One of the reasons this is hard to tease out is because if you have testicular injury from your, from your disease, and then you start hydroxyurea, and then you stop the hydroxyurea, and the, that injury is reversible, but maybe some of it isn't. And maybe that's because you had the injury before you started the hydroxyurea. You can see it gets a little circular in the logic. But it's, it's definitely true that men who have not taken hydroxyurea may have abnormal sperm counts and that men who have taken hydroxyurea have some abnormal sperm counts. And the reversibility of that in the case of hydroxyurea, I think, is hopeful, and whereas the reversibility of it with, from a, as a consequence of your disease is a little bit more difficult to suss out. For women, so that you know, the most the, the first thing we always think about is is pregnancy in women with sickle cell disease is high risk. It's high risk if they get pregnant when they're 16. It's high risk if they get pregnant when they're 35. And so, maternal fetal medicine specialists and your high risk obstetric colleagues are really key partners in managing these patients. I think I touched upon before that there are thrombotic risks associated with estrogen containing contraception in this population. So there are, I think, there are meaningful concerns about what kind of contraception our patients get with respect to this, um, that set of complications. And then fertility in women with sickle cell disease is, is what I study. And it's complicated, I think it's fair to say. There are a set of studies that um, have come out in the last couple of years from a both historic and temporary cohorts, one in London and then the historic multi-center study of hydroxyurea data. Both of those make it look like the reproductive lifespan of women with sickle cell disease is reduced. So, so they don't have the same reproductive lifespan as women with unaf- who are unaffected by sickle cell disease. And an open question is the degree to which or, or whether hydroxyurea affects that reproductive lifespan further. You know, further complicating this is the issue of, of the degree to which our measures of fertility predict spontaneous pregnancy in people without a diagnosis of infertility. It turns out they're not so hot for that. So certainly haven't been validated in sickle cell disease. So, so while we have a set of tools to assess fertility in women and men with sickle cell disease, the tools for women still need to, some more study to figure out exactly what they tell us about sort of the, the potential to have a child. Chris, you want to start asking wrap-up questions? Yeah. So I have two questions. My first is in my pre-reading and of course, through our discussions, there have been lots of great names for studies that you've been spouting off. What is the favorite name of a study that you um, have been, (laughs) that is associated with sickle cell? And then what are your take home points for the listeners? So I think my two favorites are props and stop. And mostly my favorite, they are my favorites because I spend my free time trying to think of how I'm going to name my future multi-center sickle cell studies. And I really like the idea of someday running a mad props study and also a, <laughs> and also a stop it study. So I, I have some ambitions in that regard. So I'm, I'm going to go with stop and props one. Those are good. I, I like baby hug. Yeah, it's a, it's a competitive field for naming. <laughs> so the second part of my question is, what are your take-home question, points for our listeners? Sure. So, you know, I think for the pediatric listeners out there, we do we do a lot of work to prepare our patients for to transition to make this big leap from pediatric to adult care. And I think that work is really important. I also think there are some things that that I that are just profoundly different between the pediatric and adult context. And I don't know how much preparing 
helps with that. I think what helps with it probably is a lot of handholding and, and to have a lot of handholding on the adult side, we need more resources. So, 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 you know, there's, there's really not parallels in the most of the adult sickle cell world for the amount of handholding that many high quality sickle cell, pediatric sickle cell centers are able to provide. And, and the reason I've come to think that that's so important is I, I think that preparing patients to transition and, and, you know, this is a little bit informed by my own transition from pediatric to adult care context, but it's a little bit like telling someone that you're going to take to, to a country. I've, I've been saying China, but it could be anywhere where the letters look different and, and you, you can't read the alphabet and you can't speak the language and you know you you can read all the guidebooks and and you can you can teach some some of the most important words but if when you when you get there you, you're not fluent and you can't read the language um, if you don't have a tour guide it's really hard to be there and and it, and really no amount of preparing for that experience changes that and so I think I think that there's a real resource challenge that um, we are going to have to confront if we're going to improve transition for for young adults with sickle cell disease. To to the adult doctors, I think you know one of the things that pediatricians do is we think developmentally, and I I, I sort of think internal medicine doctors think about everybody and geriatrics. And, and it turns out that there are some other life phases in there. And sorry if the internal medicine people feel short, shortchanged in this analysis, but I think we don't think developmentally about 20 to 30-year-olds. We think of them as adults. And the Supreme Court has ruled that that's not true, right? Our, the way that we deal with capital punishment is different for young adults. And, and I, but I don't think our medical system has quite figured that out. And so I think thinking developmentally about young people as their brains continue to develop in this time period where they're making profound life choices, right? You all decided to go to medical school in your 20s, or you followed through on that wish, most likely in your 20s. And, you know, for a few of you, you were a little older. But, but, but that's a really, it's a, it's a time period of profound decision making. And if you can be a coach, if you can be someone who, who is trusted by young people in this time period, when they're going through many significant changes for their bodies, but also the rest of their life, I think you can really support them to grow up to be the adults you hope they will be. And finally, my patients get a bad rap. And I want you to know that they are brave, and they are insightful, and they are almost always interested in what you have to say. And you can almost always teach them something, and they almost always want to learn. So I think, I hope you will make that assumption about the next patient of mine that you meet. That was beautiful. <laughs> thank, thank you for, for ending on that. And can I also ask, you know, we love having you here. We love learning about other resources. Is there anything that you have that you'd like to share or like to plug while we have you yeah. uh, or that you think our audience would be interested in? So I've, I'm, I, I don't listen to podcasts. I might listen to this one, but I probably won't. Tell me if it's good. Okay. <laughs> But WYPR had a podcast that came out, I think last year or the year before, called The Realness, which was an investigation of the life and death of the Queens-born hip-hop star Prodigy, who was a member of Mob Deep. And he died of a, of after or in the middle of a sickle cell of pain event after a show in Nevada. And it's a six-part podcast, and it does a really good job of explaining a lot about sickle cell disease better than, um, better than most most things I've read or seen. And so I really recommend it. And, and probably the best endorsement is that I've had some of my patients listen to it and they feel well represented in the program as well. So I, I, if you want to learn more about what it's like to live with sickle cell disease and some of the challenges of particularly in adult care for, for people with sickle cell disease, The Realness was a great podcast. Awesome. Amazing. Thank you so much. Cool. Thank you so much. Can I ask as a side note, uh, I am writing this down. 
uh, as a primary care doctor, if I felt comfortable prescribing hydroxyurea, like I did in your clinic a couple times, is there any reason I shouldn't do that? So that's a, if the patient's not showing up. I think that's a great question. Um, so I think reducing barriers to hydroxyurea prescribing is 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 very important. And I think when hydroxyurea was the only drug that we had, there was a lot of interest in this approach to treating sickle cell disease. But I think the excuse me, the treatment landscape is much more complicated now. And so I think if you have the ability to convince your patients to come for a specialty consultation, it's worth it. The, the flip side of that answer is that I still think hydroxyurea is still our best drug for most patients with this disease. And so if you can feel confident looking at blood counts of patients and feel confident in the basics of dosings of the drugs, I think you can be a real enabler and a real force for helping, helping patients learn about the drug and helping people feel like their crazy hematologist isn't the only one recommending this treatment for their disease, that there's a real consensus that this is the right treatment for your disease. Does that make sense? Absolutely. No, uh, that seems reasonable. This has been an episode of the Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our mailing list, Knowledge Food Formula Feeds, at thecribsiders.com. We are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Martha Brucato, and our social media team. I've been Chris the Chew Man Chew. I've been Martha Brucato. And I've been Justin Burke. Have a lovely night. Adios. Good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.